Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Let us remain standing and sing together hymn number 87. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we do confess indeed that you are holy and that your holiness is something which uh, by its very nature transcends our existence and it sets you apart from us. Uh, It is in, in that sense something which is difficult for us to comprehend because it is everything that we aren't. It is everything that uh, sets you apart, not only from ourselves, but this world. Uh, the amazing thing, obviously, for us in terms of the book of Hebrews that we've been considering and what it is we are participating in in worship is that we have been invited not only to partake of your holiness through a new nature and the life of the Holy Spirit in us, but to enter into the Holy of Holies and to dwell in your holiness, especially in the hour of worship. God in heaven, uh, we are only beginning to understand what that even means. But we know that as uh, the, the priest of the old covenant had an outward holiness at best uh, in terms of their, their robes and the rituals associated with it. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are uh, the embodiment of holiness, both in your divinity and your humanity. Uh, there is in you a perfection of holiness which we adore and which we are trying to understand. Uh, and which we are seeking to find out about as much as we can. Uh, and so, Lord, we ask you that 
we would uh, be able more and more to comprehend this great attribute of yours and that we would, uh, as a result of that, both as we find in the Old and the New Testaments, we would hear the words which you say to your church that we are to be holy even as you are holy, that we would not only partake of your holiness, holiness, but that we would exhibit it and display it in our personal lives and in our worship and in our fellowship. Uh, Certainly all those things were embodied in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which becomes a symbol and a picture of the Christian life, as we'll see this evening. Uh, God in heaven, uh, the church is not the church, properly speaking, when she does not take this task seriously. And we ask you that we would hear what you have to say to us and that we would take it to heart. And that we would recognize that the church is not indeed a theology club. Uh, certainly it's not a political organization. There's so many things we could make it as a kind of man-made thing. But it is a holy society. It is a fellowship of the saints. And God, we pray that not only that you would make it so, but that you would make us realize that it is so and begin more and more to live and to be sure that it is so. Uh, and so, Father, we have a lot of light which is shed on that subject uh, in your word, which we need to hear. We need, we need to be called to something better. There is too much complacency, let us confess, in this church and in the church, generally speaking. We have not adequately heeded the call. We have not adequately adored, adored your holiness, nor embodied it. And we are asking you, Holy Spirit, to convict the world concerning sin, judgment, and righteousness, and especially to do so in the church. To give to us more and more a spirit of holiness in this church. And so we pray in Jesus name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter five is the scripture passage. It is a uh, direct parallel to our sermon text. Uh, And in reality, the sermon will be an exposition of both of these passages. I think you'll see why Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is directly quoted here as a parallel to the Christian life. First Corinthians chapter five. And as we think about how much sexual immorality there is even in the church today, I think we need to listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul has to say. He says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done so, uh, who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for our sins, or for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, uh, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And now in response to God's holy word, let us stand and sing the doxology. Go. 
please be seated. And turn with me to the front of your hymnal, where you'll find the Nicene Creed. And let us confess it together now, saying, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let us stand together and sing hymn number 469. seated. Exodus chapter 12 is our passage. By the way, that hymn was from Psalm 3. Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, as I uh, it indicated last time, I was doing something a little out of the ordinary. I was preaching out of order, so one through uh, 13, and then I preached the following, uh, 21 through 28. I, I didn't want the Feast of Unleavened Bread to be included in that sermon. I wanted to focus on the lamb that was slain. You have uh, the instructions and then the actual sacrifice, which are on either side of this passage. So it has a thematic unity, but I want to look now at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and hear the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 through 20. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. 
Throughout your generations you shall keep it as a feast uh, by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. For whoever eats leavened bread... From the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance on the first month of the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is unleavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. And let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that with a passage like this, preachers such as myself might might not have the slightest clue what to do with it, but uh, we find so much of scripture interpreting scripture and uh, a striking interpretation of it found in 1 Corinthians 5 uh, of what the feast represented, especially the unleavened bread. Lord, let us hear what you have to say to us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I never thought that the Feast of Unleavened Bread would lead me to address sexual immorality in the church, but so (laughs) the course of Scripture goes, and so I intend to do. Recently, I was reading something about the preaching of George Whitfield. I can't remember what I was reading, but I remember what was said. A prominent preacher said of his preaching, he's giving us Henry. That is, his preaching came directly out of Matthew Henry's commentary and was virtually a reproduction of what was said there. I know this is likely true because uh, uh, Whitfield's devotions consisted uh, simply of him laying out the Greek New Testament and Matthew Henry's commentaries and his, his journals in the morning. Uh, and as he did that, uh, he produced so many of his mighty sermons. But what is the point of this? It's that I'm asking you to understand that so often I'm only doing what the great George Whitfield did himself. I'm giving you Henry. I think today we're not supposed to do that, but I think I agree with the ancient practice. So often I read Henry and I think, well, now I have a sermon. And so let me give you a little Henry to begin my sermon on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. First, we should notice the structure of the ordinance as we're looking at chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 28 as one unit, although we're breaking it up in two, verses 1 through 28. If we begin uh, in, uh, yeah, in verse 1, so going back to what we considered last time, there was first the slaying of the lamb, uh, and then there was following that the sprinkling of the blood considered as a separate act with its own significance, and together the slaying and the sprinkling was seen as an act of expiation or forgiveness, which was a necessary prelude to what follows, namely uh, the meal itself, where they consumed the Paschal Lamb, and they were to do so entirely, an act which marked out the communion of the people with the Lord himself. Following that, bringing us into the current passage, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, outlined in verses 14 through 20 which was to be a week of celebration and commemoration. And so the order or the structure of these events was this. In essence, expiation in the blood, communion in the meal, and commemoration in the feast. And let me unfold that a little more before we look at this particular aspect, the commemoration of the feast. Matthew Henry, speaking of the Paschal Lamb, says... There was much of the gospel in this ordinance, as we saw last time. But he says, and I think this is the crucial observation about the feast which followed, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was typical of the Christian life. It was, uh, it was 
a symbolic representation of what the Christian life was meant to be. And this is something that we find quite clearly in our parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Christ, our Passover, has been slain. Let us walk in the newness of life he has purchased for us by cleansing out the old leaven of sexual immorality. We will consider this point later on. It's a major point of the sermon. But here again, it's important that we notice the order of things, seeing that the feast is that which follows the Paschal meal. Henry says, having received Christ Jesus the Lord... Not merely uh, cons- uh, considering his shed blood, but actually feeding upon him by faith, making him ours, and doing so completely, represented in uh, eating the entire lamb that was slain at the Paschal meal. Henry says, we must by faith feed upon a whole Christ. And having found refuge under the safety of his blood sprinkled on the altar, he goes on, we must keep a feast in holy joy continually delighting ourselves in Christ Jesus. It must be a feast of unleavened bread, kept in charity, without the leaven of malice and sincerity, without the leaven of hypocrisy. Having fed upon Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sin, we must keep the feast of unleavened bread. And that connection, the connection between the feast and the Christian life, is what we're meant to observe here. Since that is the connection we find in the New Testament. But also because that was the significance of the meal or the feast rather for Israel herself. So let us consider first the feast and then we'll see what the New Testament has to say about it in applying it to us. And there are several things that we could observe about the feast in particular. Three things. The first is. That it was to be a standing ordinance. Verses 14 and 17. I'll just read verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. And so on. It was something, therefore, that was to be observed and celebrated by Israel yearly. Following the observance of the Passover. Which meant that it was to be a regular part of her religious life. And her religious observance. Another indication, as I said last time, that the Lord is the Lord of time and the Lord of days. When he makes this clear to us, let us make it clear to him that we have heard him by observing his special days. So significant was this event in the religious life of Israel, not only the Passover meal, but the feast to follow. That it must be observed, the Lord says, and remembered forever. That is for all time. Indeed, even in our observances, our weekly observances of the Lord's Supper, we remember this ordinance, don't we? For it was as the Lord observed this meal that he replaced it with something better, the Lord's Supper. And we see how it was to be, he says, a feast to the Lord as something which honored him and which we did or which they did rather at his command for his glory. However, we also see that this standing ordinance was something that fell out of practice. We see another instance, the tragedy of Israel's false worship in her failure to observe the Passover. I cannot say for certain when it fell out of practice, but I do know that part of the religious revival that occurred uh, under the kingship of Hezekiah and his grandson Josiah involved a renewed practice of this ordinance, which you'll find at the end of Second Chronicles, for instance. And so let us see this, uh, see in this once again, how much we honor God. By honoring his special days, which for us includes, obviously, as New Covenant believers, our weekly Sabbaths. And how a decline in spirituality is always marked by a failure to observe these things, whether in the case of Israel or in the case of the church. As though to underscore this point in the second place, we also see the seriousness of the ordinance stated in these terms, reminding us, Uh, Of what the Lord said about the covenant sign of circumcision. Verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from that first day until the seventh day. That person shall be cut off from Israel. You wouldn't have thought it was that serious. But it was. It was that serious to the Lord. And the more uh, deeply we are impressed with the significance of the meal. Spiritually we'll understand why. Cut off from Israel. They were to be excommunicated or forcefully expelled from the fellowship of the people of Israel. Imagine 
If we treated our observance of God's days with the same zeal, we'd practically have no one left in the church. Well, soon we will see how the same principle is found in the new covenant. Indeed, that leaven found in the house rightly understood still cuts off one from the sacred fellowship. It wasn't uh, so much the day as what they observed on the day, the leaven or the, the lack of its presence. But the point here is, see how much God values his own word and his ordinances. What he says of circumcision, he says of the Passover meal and the feast to follow. He who does not observe it, cut him off. Let him be to you as a stranger and an unbeliever. He has no place in my house. What is interesting to notice, and I've already alluded to this, is that it is the precise detail of removing leaven from the house that must be observed. And it is this which makes the feast what it is, and which exhibits a principle which, if ignored, demonstrates a sin so grievous that the only remedy is removal from the people of God. And so let us consider it next. In the third place, in the final point of significance concerning the meal, the significance of the leaven. And here I have to be honest about something. I'll never forget when, uh, some of you may remember this, although I doubt you do, when I first uh, taught on this passage many years ago in Sunday school, I had to admit I didn't even know what leaven was. Well, in case there is anyone here as clueless as I was, leaven is yeast. You need a leavening agent to make the bread come alive. Another reason I know this is because my wife has now begun to bake, uh, to make her own bread. Well, it is the yeast or the leaven that makes the bread soft and in many ways delightful. But it is also the leaven which makes the bread spoil so easily. In contrast to a cracker, which is unleavened bread. Although a cracker, you could leave it on the counter for a long time and it wouldn't spoil. So leaven became a symbol of impurity. As that which makes to spoil and putrefy. Listen to Kyle and Dillich on this point. They were to eat pure loaves, they say, not fermented with leaven, for leaven, which sets the dough in fermentation and so produces impurity, was a natural symbol of moral corruption. The Lord was here teaching, as again we'll see from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 quite clearly, a spiritual lesson. A spiritual lesson having to do with putting away the leaven of the flesh or the leaven of sin or immorality. Jesus, in another place, tells us to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, that is, their false teaching and their moral wickedness. Kyle and Dillage go on, the significance of this feast was in the eating of the mazoth, of the pure unleavened bread, as bread, which is the principal means of preserving life, might easily be regarded as the symbol of life itself, so the mazoth, the unleavened loaves, were symbolic of new life, as cleansed from the leaven of a sinful nature. The Israelites were called to put away all the leaven of their Egyptian nature, the leaven of malice and wickedness. And by eating pure and holy bread and meeting for the worship of God to show that they were walking in the newness of life, a new life and a new path, a setting out on a new course as she departed from Egypt. That was the point. This uh, moment represented for Israel her adoption as a nation, or at least it was to mark out for them a new beginning when God uh, at last set them apart by his grace as he visited Egypt in judgment. Now she was to be gathered as a nation free of the leaven of the Egyptians under the leadership of Moses. Connected with this, as we find in the feast, was the idea of Sabbath. No work was to be done. Verse 16 on the first day, day, there should be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared. Uh, that only may be prepared by you. No work at all except that which must be done to prepare this food for the feast. It was an entire week of rest. Seven days of Sabbath marked out by a holy assembly on the first day and the last. 
Here was Israel not only observing a week of Sabbaths, but also on that first and last day, joining together in corporate worship. As Kyle and Dillich say, the feast of Mezolf, the commemoration of Israel's creation as the people of Jehovah, was fixed for seven days while the seal of worship was impressed upon the new life in the holy convocation and the suspension of labor was the symbol of rest in the Lord. So there is the significance of the meal. Insofar as the Old Testament was concerned, setting out on a new course, enjoying the new life, free of the leaven of Egypt, uh, and, and something that they were to commemorate year by year that they didn't. And so they fell uh, into false worship. But the real significance, insofar as we are concerned, has to do with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which will require an exposition of its own. So I'll turn there now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In that passage we discover the true significance of this text to ourselves since we're no longer uh, those who observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, obviously. And there we discover the truth of Henry's words, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was typical of the Christian life. That is, there was a principle present there, which also must be present in the living out of the Christian life, especially within the context and the confines of the church. We Christians today are like Israel here, called to the same kinds of things. We are to live out the spiritual principles which were present in the outward ordinances of the Old Covenant. We see first in verse 1, that sexual immorality was the issue. Uh, and already I'm finding, uh, I already felt this way, but I'll just point it out, uh, the New King James Superior to the NAS. The NAS will have simply immorality. And I would have had to correct it and say that the word is porneia, which is quite uh, clearly a reference to sexual immorality. And so we have a more uh, or a clearer statement here. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man is his father's wife. And so, the issue here was a kind of immorality, which is, which is unheard of, or at least not tolerated among the Gentiles, those who are outside the church. The kind of thing that would make even an Egyptian, or in our context, an average depraved American blush. And so it was sexual immorality of an appalling kind. It was grievous sexual sin, as I say, that would make the unbeliever blush, even him. In this case, it was a man who had his mother-in-law. I'm sure you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 5. I don't need to get into all the details, but surely we can agree. Even the unbeliever would agree what a shameful act this was. And the real tragedy, Paul says, he's rebuking the church here, not so much the offender, but the church The real tragedy is that the church in her pride was not in the least worried about it. They were boasting, if you know 1 Corinthians, you will remember this, they were boasting as though they were spiritual giants. When in reality, they should have been ashamed to have such immorality in their midst for a single Sunday. They boasted in their spiritual gifts when their fellowship was marred by the leaven of impurity and sexual immorality. The remedy here is stated in verses 2 through 5, and again in verse 13. In essence, I'll read the verses, but in essence, let the man be expelled. Cut the sinner off from your fellowship. Verses 2 through 5, I'll read them again. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done uh, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, but those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Let the sinner be expelled. Notice that Paul here says, let it be done with immediacy and urgency. That was part of the rebuke here to the church. They were delaying when they ought to have been acting. If you will not do it, then he says, I will. 
I will cast them out, even though at a distance. Let me be honest to you about something. Let me think out loud for a moment. I know it's not all that safe to do that from the pulpit, but from time to time, I'm going to allow myself to do that. I sometimes wonder whether our slow, deliberative kind of uh, discipline is biblical. The kind of thing that you find in the Presbyterian Church. I won't say for certain. I just notice this here, uh, that sin is always dealt with with a kind of immediacy in the New Testament that you rarely find in the church today. Of course, there must be witnesses. You can't just expel whomever you like from the church. But when sin has occurred in such a way that it is known, then I'm not sure what there is to wait for. I remember reading... J. Gresham Machen saying, and we have the booklet at the back of the church, The Responsibility of the Church in the New Age. Many of you have read it. He says not only that the early church was radically doctrinal, but he also says that the early church was radically ethical and radically intolerant. Imagine glorying in those things today. Radically intolerant, but also radically ethical. Again, what did I say this morning? Let me say it again. The church is not a theology club. It's not even a hospital for sinners. Uh, We've talked about this before. I'm not going to get into that again. We don't all just languish in our sin, waiting to get better. We are those who are getting better all the time. It's a barracks. We've, We've been over that. I'm not going to get into that again. It's a holy society. A holy society. Those redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be sure that we know it, beloved. That is surely what God was telling Israel. Let the feast stand as a reminder to you, not only of your birth as a nation, but also of your purity from the nations. In your birth, I called you to remove the the leaven of impurity from your midst. And that is what the church must always remember, that she exists as a distinct entity from the world. The things that you find in the world, you won't find in the church. At least you shouldn't. And God help us if that which even the world won't tolerate, we begin to tolerate. No, Paul says, do not associate with the immoral person. The sexually immoral, verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. That is the point he says which he's made already. Of course, he makes clear he doesn't mean the sexually immoral person of the world. Obviously not. Verse 10. I certainly didn't mean the sexually immoral people of this world. That is beside the point. The church isn't called to deal with sin in the world. But if she won't deal with sin and the sinner in her midst, she hardly deserves to be called a church at all. And so he says in verse 11. Now I've written to you that uh, I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And then verse 12, For what I have to do, what, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Deal with the sinner in your midst, he says. Finally, verse 13, Those who are outside, God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Do you see how strongly he puts it? I wonder if Paul could be any clearer. He says, don't even eat with such a person. I once heard someone ask, is Paul actually saying you're to shun this person? I don't know how some to take it. Obviously, yes, he is saying that you are to break off associating with a so-called brother who is sexually immoral. Let him know by discipline or other means he simply isn't welcome in the church. That we will not tolerate his presence. That his presence quite literally, listen, spoils our fellowship, which is to be holy and pure. Listen, he says, not just the sexually immoral, but the covetous, the idolater, the drunkard and so forth. Let us see that we are not meant to tolerate such things. And that those who practice such things are not welcome. Again, we are talking about someone who claims the name, a so-called brother. Someone who says, I'm a Christian. We believe that person. And yet they persist in these things. Of course the world will practice 
such things. Let the Lord deal with them in judgment. That is not the business of the church. But we are called as a church to maintain our ranks and never to tolerate alarming sin. We are to be radically ethical and radically intolerant. Radically. As God marked out Israel from the impurity of Egypt, signified in this feast, so he marks out the church from the impurity of the world. Let us show that we know it, beloved. And let us mourn that so often we fail to live up to this high calling. That we boast when we really ought to mourn. Looking the other way in the presence of alarming sin. And the reason for this, you see, is stated in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 is a statement of the spiritual principle foreshadowed in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is what he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's the point. You can't even have a little bit in the house. And you can understand how this works out in terms of a spiritual principle. Just a little bit of leaven is too much. It's too much. And that is because a little bit of leaven is all you need. It only takes a little bit of leaven to leaven the whole lump of dough. Don't even allow a little bit, the Lord says. And he who does is to be cut off. Going back to the language of Uh, The feast in Exodus chapter 12. Don't even allow a little, not in the bread, still less in the church. Indeed, he goes on, verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then, verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you see how he takes the feast and then he brings it in to our present setting? And we notice again, just as we did with the feast, that the order is not cleanse out the leaven, then you are saved. That's a false gospel. And don't uh, don't any of you say that I'm preaching that because I'm not. The whole ordinance tells us something quite different, a different order. The lamb must first be slain, the lamb being Christ. Then we must partake of the lamb by faith. We must feed upon Christ. We must feed upon the whole Christ. And only following that do we observe the feast. Getting rid of the old malice of wicked, uh, the old leaven, excuse me, of malice and wickedness. Indeed, he says, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed and you are now in leaven, speaking of the church. Is that not enough for us to heed the exhortation to put away the leaven of sin, to get rid of these sinful practices once and for all, to be zealous not to engage in these kinds of sinful practices anymore, nor to allow them or those who practice such things to have a place in the church? Let us together embody the principle of the feast, namely setting out on a new life, A life of purity and godliness and devotion. Or as Paul says here, we are to celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We are, as the church, a holy society. And so let me do something that the Apostle Paul does here. What the Apostle Paul does is he engages in a specific sin which is occurring in that church. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to be extremely practical. And I'm worried you're not ready to hear what I'm about to say, but I will say it still. As I stand here in this pulpit, I am telling you this evening and I'm speaking to the men of the church, every single one of you, to stop looking at pornography. I know all of you aren't doing it, but I do know that some of you are. And my admonition to you this evening is once and for all to stop looking at pornography, to stop pretending it is a common struggle, as you call it. When such behavior is considered shameful, even among unbelievers. I know you will tell me it is common among unbelievers. But what I've discovered is actually the opposite. It's that any self-respecting unbeliever will not look at pornography. It's too degrading. It's too shameful. And it is sad that the unbeliever should ever do better than the believer in battling against sin. And so what I'm telling you is what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church. To put away the old leaven. To clean it out. 
And to hear the good news of the gospel. Christ our lamb is our Passover. And he has been sacrificed for our sins. And so he has made us clean. Will you go on and grovel in this kind of sin anymore knowing this? Do you regard Christ's blood with such contempt? You who do this deed, your deeds are wicked. They are shameful even by the low standards of unbelief. Oh, but it's just a little leaven, you say. That's all it takes. Just a little. Don't you see it? Just a little leaven. And soon all is lost. Clean it out. I assure you, Christ is able to get rid of this leaven. Will you not let him? He died not only to pardon, but to cleanse. And here is a sin which ought to be cleansed. It is a leaven which will leaven the whole lump. You will not only rot out all spiritual life and joy from yourself, but from others. Your place in the church will soon be one that is lost. As you are cast out because you were thoroughly thoroughly leavened by sexual sin. Can I be any plainer, beloved? The leaven of sexual sin and sexual immorality has no place in the church. None. Isn't that the point here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? They were tolerating it when they shouldn't have. Oh, that you would mourn and repent, Paul says. How low can your spirituality possibly be that you tolerate such sins? That you look the other way and pretend that this is just one of the usual struggles of the Christian life? It is high time that we as a church begin to take this sin seriously, beloved. And to realize what it reflects about the person who claims he's a Christian, but who continues to practice such such sins. He might as well say, I have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Do you not know this, Paul says? Is it not plain? Chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, all of those sexual sins, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You have been made clean. Oh yes, but the one who goes on, do not be deceived. Such people do not inherit the kingdom of God. I have seen men go to prison for sexual sin. Making a shipwreck of their faith. Men who sat in these pews. I am tired of the politeness. I am tired of ignoring this. And pretending this sin isn't robbing the church of her true spirituality. It is time to mourn and to be honest. And to cleanse out this leaven once and for all. And so this is what I propose. And I almost never do this, but this is what I propose. This sin is not my sin. I just want to be clear about that. But saying that, I am asking the men of the church to resolve and pledge together this evening to put away the leaven of sexual immorality once and for all, to clean it out, to pledge tonight before the Lord. To walk in the newness of life afforded to us by Christ, our Passover. To enjoy the communion and fellowship of the saints, not as a fellowship of sin, but of righteousness. Let us celebrate this feast, beloved, by our continual recognition and practice of these things. And may God's people have the grace and the faith to receive this word from my lowly lips. Amen. Let us stand together and sing hymn number 290.
I ended on a serious note, but that hymn really does reflect the spirit of the sermon. The Christian life is to be a continual life of feasting, joy, and gladness. Let us let that be what marks out our fellowship, that the Lord in his might arose and he set us free. And let us observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, by cleansing out the sin uh, which so easily entangles us. Receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.